Okay, I am back here today, uh, and I am really excited to interview Kristen Brunello. Uh, Kristen is a recovery coach and also a yoga instructor at the studio I uh, go to, and that's how we met. Uh, welcome, Kristen, to the show. Hi, Derek. How are you? I'm good. Thanks. I'm really happy to have you on, and uh, we're going to be talking about eating disorders and uh, recovery from that perspective today, and I think that's a really a uh, cool aspect to be talking about because it's not something that I've I've ever focused on on the show, and I'm sure that there's a lot of overlap uh, with with listeners or people that listeners know. So um, thanks again for for coming on today. Yeah, totally. I'm happy to be here. So we're going to start out uh, a little different because I know you are um, pretty skilled at telling your story, uh, and I think that would be a good way to kind of just uh, get the audience to get to know you, and then from there, we'll sort of springboard into some questions. Okay. So you have the floor. Uh, take it away. You know, Tell the audience a little bit about yourself and how you got here. Yeah, sure. So um, I think that my eating disorder showed signs of like being there when I was younger. Like I remember specifically in middle school, um, just like going to school and throwing out my lunches and things like that. And so I know that it definitely cropped up in middle school. Um, I think I had always sort of been a, like a sad kind of depressed kid. Like my parents always describe me as being like a very serious child, which I think is just true to my nature. I'm, I tend to be kind of a serious person. Um, but I think that when I get sad and depressed, I start to lose my appetite. And so I think part of it was when I was younger, just not feeling very hungry in middle school. But then part of it was also I would go to lunch, I'd throw out my lunches, and then I felt like I started to get attention from some of the more popular girls in class, of which I didn't really feel like I was that much part of that group. Um, and so I think I, that, that sort of felt good, but it, like, I think people could have looked at that as a phase. And I don't, I don't think my parents ever really even knew about that. I think I had some teachers that were a little concerned, and I know that my parents were concerned about my mood. Like, they also knew that I was just sad and depressed, but I don't think the food thing ever came up. Um, when I went to high school, things sort of stabilized and got better. Um, I felt like I had a better friend group, and I feel like it kind of just disappeared and was not an issue in high school. When I went to college, it was the first time that I had lived away from home, and um, I remember going there with the fear of the freshman 15, which I think, I mean, I'm assuming that's still around today, um, but I do remember going to school with that fear, and it was never like a conscious decision. Like I'm not that I wanted to lose weight, but I do remember just trying to make healthier food choices. And by that, I just mean like eating more vegetables. And um, I went to Ithaca college. And so Ithaca had like a nice fitness facility. And so my friends and I would go try to figure out how to use the gym equipment. And I feel like it really just started with that. Um, it was never intended when I started to become what it was. Um, and I think I did lose some weight and I do remember feeling or hearing like when I would go home to visit, like certain people commenting on the fact that I had lost weight and I was, I never really clinically had weight to lose. I was always like a, I was just a, a tiny person. I'm short and I'm just smaller stature. Um, but I, I don't think that I was trying to lose weight. And then March of my freshman year, my grandmother passed away, and it was kind of a traumatic experience. Um, she had cancer, and 
they had taken her to the hospital and I guess the doctors had told the family, like my dad and my mom to call the rest of the family because she wasn't going to live through the night. And so the whole family went there. And while we were all in the room with her, she passed. And there was something for me about witnessing her passing away that um, it was really traumatic for me. And and from conversations that I've had with my sister, it was traumatic for her too. And I, I think that sent me into a little bit of, um, not a little bit of a depression, but I think I, I was depressed again after that. And um, again, I was not eating and it wasn't in the way that um, I was just trying to eat in a healthier fashion. It was that I just lost my appetite. So again, it was never, it still wasn't what it became. It was just that I wasn't hungry anymore. And because I wasn't hungry, I wasn't really eating. And then again, I think that was reinforced by attention that I was getting, one, for losing weight, and two, because I wasn't eating. Um, I went home for the summer between freshman and sophomore year. And again, I was just, I was really sad. And so I started seeing a therapist and I got put on um, Lexapro, an antidepressant. And um, I remember the therapist didn't really know what to do with me. We had had like several conversations about the fact that I wasn't eating and she just kind of like was sort of brushing over it. And um, so I didn't really get anything from seeing her. And I had told my, my medical doctor about it and she had given me the name of an organization to look into that was an eating disorder focused organization. And I think maybe that was the first time that I really realized what I might've been actually dealing with on top of depression. Um, I went back to college sophomore year and um, at the same time, my roommate was also struggling with an eating disorder and we were obviously living together and I think we were, our illnesses were just feeding off of each other. Um, and so I just continued to be depressed. I continued to lose weight. Um, I went home for winter break and then I came back and the spring semester of my sophomore year is really when everything just blew up. So I remember being really depressed. I started having panic attacks um, I, I like remember having a panic attack and I've had a few of these in my life where I just like start to lose feeling in my limbs because I'm hyperventilating and like oxygen's not getting where it needs to be. So I remember having to go to the hospital once for that at college. Um, and I also remember just being so depressed that I wasn't going to classes anymore. Um, I, I remember just like laying in bed for a whole week. I didn't go to any of my classes. And at that point I kind of, thought to myself, like, what is the point of me being in college and specifically my parents paying for me to be in college if I wasn't going to actually go into classes anymore? And I had looked up um, eating disorder residential facilities for my roommate because I was just like so wrong in my head that I thought she needed to go somewhere and didn't realize that I needed to go somewhere until I realized that I wasn't going to classes anymore. And so the only place that I knew of, and it might have only been because they had this awful movie that had come out, but the only place that I knew of um, was called the Renfrew Center, and they had a location in Philadelphia. So I live in North Jersey, so Philadelphia is not that far from there. And I called them, and I did an intake over the phone, and they had said that they wanted me to drive down and do an in-person intake. So um, at that point, I realized I was leaving Ithaca, and so I took a medical leave of absence, and I packed up all of my stuff in um, my car and I drove down to the Renfrew Center and I did an in-person intake. And that really was just like a bunch of questions and answers. They weighed me. They took my vitals. They decided that I did need to be in residential treatment, but they didn't have a bed for me yet. So I ended up going back home and staying with my parents for a few weeks until a bed opened up. And um, 
so I went there. It was March of 2000. Um, March of 2007 was the first time that I was there. And I stayed there for nine weeks. And I did really well in treatment. And I think I just do well in, um, in communities. I remember when I was younger, I used to go to this camp every teacher's convention. And I loved it. And, and again, it was a sense of community and being part of something and being surrounded by people that I loved and that I knew cared about me. And I always did well in those situations. So in treatment, I did well too. Um, the Renfrew Center is a pretty big eating disorder facility. It houses, I think, probably like 40 to 45 women um, between, I think, 13 is the youngest you can be when you're there and then all the way up in age. And like I said, I was there for about nine weeks. It consisted of, I think, therapy two or three times a week, psychiatry at least once a week, nutrition several times a week, um, a lot of group therapy, a lot of meal therapy, art therapy, dance therapy. There was a lot of different stuff. And I liked it. And, you know, I've heard people not like the Renfrew Center, but I kind of think um, when you're ready to recover, one of my friends says you can even, you can recover in a cave if you're ready, if you're ready to recover. And um, I did pretty well. I wasn't ready to leave. I knew that. Um, I fought really hard to stay there for as long as I could. But the insurance company, my insurance company didn't pay for any of my time actually while I was there, but about nine weeks in people were like, you just have to go. So I left and I started going to the Red Fruit Center's um, day treatment program. So I think it was four days a week and you go there and you have breakfast and lunch there and then you do a bunch of groups. And then I transitioned into their intensive outpatient program, their IOP program. And that's three nights a week. You go there and you have dinner. And I was there for a while too. And, um, you know, the reality was I just wasn't, I wasn't ready to be better. Um, I think a lot of people with eating disorders feel like they have to feel like they want to be better, but I don't think I really did yet. And I was, um, it's not that I was resistant treatment, but I just wasn't, like I wasn't doing what I needed to do outside of treatment. And they realized they weren't helping me. So they sent me to another place called the Koch Center, which is in Hohokus, New Jersey. And they sent me there specifically because the Koch Center had a, a DBT program, a dialectical behavioral therapy program, which at the time the Renfrew Center didn't have. I do think they have it now. And DBT um, has been, is like a form of therapy that they use in, um, I think like treatments of mental illnesses that seem to be treatment resistant. And I did like it. What I like about it is I feel like it's very practical. Um, it's tools on what to do when you're having strong urges and practical ways of communicating and asking for what you need. Um, I hated, I hated the Koch center though, only because there was only four of us. I was the youngest by far. I didn't like the group that I was in. So I don't think I did as well as I could have done there if I felt connected to the people that were also in all of my groups with me. That being said, I was assigned a therapist that I really liked and um, I saw her a lot. She helped me a lot. I started going to Montclair State University. So I transferred to a college closer to home and I just did not like it. So about three weeks in, I um, stopped going there. It was early enough in the semester that I could withdraw from all of my classes without it affecting my GPA or anything. And then um, much to the dismay of my family and my therapist, I decided I wanted to go back to Ithaca um, in the spring semester of um, what I guess would have been my junior year. And so I went and um, I relapsed really hard, really fast. And when I got back to Ithaca, my symptoms had changed a lot. So up until this point, I had been diagnosed as an anorexic. Really, my only symptoms were restricting. I just wasn't eating a lot of food. I restricted to a very low 
amount of calories every day. Um, I really judged my success based on what my number on the scale was. And that was kind of all that I had been doing up until that point. When I got back to Ithaca, I mean, things spiraled so, so fast. So I would say I was still anorexic. I think that was still probably my diagnostic term, but they also added purging tendencies because I was barely eating, but what I did eat, I was then making myself throw up. I did overexercise a little bit, but that wasn't really my main symptom. So it really was barely eating. And then when I did eat, I would, I was throwing up and purging a few times a day as well. Um, and because of that, I dropped a lot of weight in a matter of, um, Ithaca started, I think school again, the Tuesday after Martin Luther King day. And, um, by March, so like barely two months, I was back in, in, in Renfrew. So I decided I needed to take another medical leave of absence because again, I was, depressed. I wasn't going to class. Um, but I really, I had been to residential and I knew that I liked residential treatment. And so um, I had started seeing a therapist when I was at Ithaca the second time. Her name was Karen and I really liked her. And what I liked about her was that she was really real. I didn't feel like she ever judged me. I felt like I could say anything in front of her and like some stuff with eating disorders, is just like gross. And so I just felt like I could say whatever I needed to with her. And I remember, um, sitting across from her one one of our sessions and just being like, I really want to go back to Renfrew. And she asked me why. And I said, because I want permission to eat again. And that's really how my eating disorder felt. It felt so out of my control that even though I wanted to eat, I actually couldn't. Like I just couldn't force myself out of this routine and this habit that I had created for myself of barely eating and getting rid of everything that I ate. And um she didn't find me on it. So she said, sure. And um, she called Renfrew. And again, I don't think they had a bed right away. So I took another medical leave of absence. I went back home. I don't think my parents were like thrilled, um, but I did end up back in Renfrew, Philadelphia. And I was there for six weeks this time. And this time felt different. So the first time I was there, I like I knew I had an eating disorder, but I didn't really know how to describe it. And I didn't know what had really triggered it. I hadn't processed a lot of my grandmother's death and I hadn't processed a lot of stuff that had happened in my childhood. And I had done a lot of art therapy while I was there because I didn't feel like I had the words to describe, you know, and talk about what needed to be talked about. Um, my second time in treatment, I barely did art therapy. And I remember just like talking a lot. They had these daily, um, I think they called it contact. I don't remember what they called it, but it was like these daily check-ins. You were assigned a counselor every day that you had to check in with. And I remember like other women's check-ins were like five minutes long and mine would be like hours long. And that's not even exaggeration. Like I had so much to talk about. Um, and towards the end of that stay in treatment, I just, I knew I was ready to leave. It wasn't like the last time where I just tried to get more time there. Um, so six weeks in, I left. Um, I did not do IOP or day treatment. I didn't feel like they helped me that much. And so I didn't go back to there. I started seeing Tina, who was my therapist that I had gotten assigned to. Um, I started seeing her twice a week and um, I was seeing a psychiatrist and I don't, I actually don't think I was seeing a nutritionist right away. I know when I got out, I wasn't better. So it's not like this thing where you leave residential treatment and suddenly everything's better and your symptoms are gone and you're happy to be eating and all of this stuff. Like that's absolutely not how it happened. Um, but I, I think it was like a very slow but steady climb on my way out of my eating disorder. Um, 
I started doing yoga. I was going to a New York sports club um, and trying to figure out this like new relationship with my body. And they had uh, yoga classes there and I was doing them and I really liked it. And at the time I lucked out that a lot of gyms don't always have the best yoga teachers, but they had really phenomenal yoga teachers at the time. So I was taking yoga classes there and then I got really sick. Um, You know, when you have an eating disorder, you are not feeding your body well and your immune system just plummets because there's only so much your body's capable of doing. And at some point, all of your body is just trying to keep you alive, like keep your heart beating and like your, your lungs breathing. And um, I had, my immune system was bad. And so I remember one November and December, I went from um, a sinus infection to strep throat back to a sinus infection. So I was on antibiotics straight for probably a month and a half. And I developed something called C. diff colitis, which is what I've been told is an illness that like people get when they're in their 70s. Like it's an, an illness that generally affects older people. Um, and it's highly contagious among older people and it can kill older people. And I was 21, 22, I think at the time when I had this, I remember like nurses walking into my room without having looked at my chart and just being so surprised to see like a young 22 year old sitting in the hospital bed and not like a 76 year old. Um, I had to stop yoga for a while because of I, because I was sick. When I got out of the hospital, I started seeing a nutritionist because I had to be reintroduced to fiber. My um, digestive system needed a break. And so there's only certain foods that I can eat. And I got so lucky that my nutritionist that I found was not an eating disorder specialist, but she was, she was just phenomenal. She was so good. Um, and what I loved about her was she gave me all of these goals. She made me write a commitment to her. I think one of our first sessions to tell her why I was committed to getting better because she was like, I'm not going to help you if you don't want to help yourself. And that kind of tough love was like very new to me. So I wrote this commitment um, that I still have and it still blows me away sometimes to read it because literally now in my life, I'm doing exactly what I had said in my commitment that I wanted to do. Um, and I remember she gave me all of these goals. And after my first time seeing her, I went to the grocery store and really had a, like a, just a little bit of a freak out trying to buy everything she wanted me to buy. And I called her and she was the first treatment provider I had ever had that actually answered the phone when I called her. Typically it's like you leave a message and then they call you back the next day. And by then your panic attacks over. Um, but she answered the phone and she was very understanding and she worked with me. And so I saw her pretty regularly um, for probably about a year, if not more. Um, and then I started uh, going to yoga again at the New York Sports Club, and my favorite teacher there, her name was Danielle, she started working at a local yoga studio, and so um, she got me a free, like a first-class free thing, and so I started going to a studio called Garden State Yoga, which does not exist anymore, but it was in Bloomfield, New Jersey. It was a hot yoga studio, and um, I went, and I went a lot, and I loved it. I loved being in the heat, and actually, I didn't mention this, but I was doing Bikram yoga um, at Ithaca while I was really sick. And it was also a hot form of yoga that I also really loved. Um, but I was like, so not healthy and I had no business really doing it. But, um, <laughs> so kind of figuring out this new relationship to a different kind of yoga that I, I liked a lot. Bikram yoga is very strict. It's the same 26 poses in the same order for the same amount of time, every single class. And I think I loved it when my life felt like it was falling apart because it was this structure and it was very strict and it felt um, like relieving to be in that room. But hot power vinyasa is not like that. It's a different class every single time. And uh, there's like so many yoga poses, more than 26. There's like 
26,000 yoga poses. Um, so I started going to the studio and I loved it. And I started working at the studio as a karma yogi is what they call it. And it's basically um, you work the front desk in exchange for free yoga because I couldn't afford it. Um, and I also started going to Seton Hall University. So everybody made the decision, including myself, that I shouldn't go back to Ithaca. So the fall after I got out of treatment the second time, I was starting to do yoga and I was home going to school and I liked Seton Hall. Um, and um, that's kind of what I did. And I, I graduated Seton Hall um, valedictorian. I was, I've always excelled academically and I, I really studied a lot. I was a psychology honors major. And then at the same time, I was doing a lot of yoga. And um, I feel like there's been like a lot of little pieces to like the puzzle of my recovery. And like one of those pieces was Renfrew, the residential treatment center. One of those pieces was Tina, my therapist. Deborah, my nutritionist, was another major piece. Um, yoga, I would say if like if this was a five-piece puzzle, like yoga was piece number four. Um, what I love about yoga still and what I loved about it when I was primarily starting was two things. One was it gave me this relationship to my body that I had never had before. Um, I think what I liked about when I was anorexic was feeling like I was doing something and seeing a change in my body. And that meant like the scale number was dropping. In yoga, I was also seeing changes in my body, not physically, but what it was capable of, right? So it was like, first I couldn't do a headstand and then I could. And first I couldn't do crow pose and then I worked and then I could. And, and so I saw my body getting stronger and I felt like I had control of my body. And I think a lot of eating disorders, especially anorexia is about control. And I, so it gave me this other... Um, way to channel this control that I felt like I needed. Um, and it also gave me a community of people that I really liked. It was the first time in a long time I felt like I had friends. Um, I do think in the beginning I kind of transferred my addiction to yoga, like, and this is not even a joke, like probably 14 yoga classes a week, multiple, multiple classes a day. You know, on Saturdays I took three and it was definitely too much and it was definitely not healthy. But my treatment team was a little bit more patient with weaning me off of yoga than they were with my eating disorder. Um, and then with the community, it was just, they went out every Friday, you know, and they had fun and they went out to dinner and they ordered dinner in and um, you know, I had never been someone to like drink alcohol and I'm still not a big drinker, but it used to be out of a fear of the calories and the alcohol. And, you know, they would go out to a bar and I, and I wanted to do that too. And I wanted to fit in with them and I wanted to feel normal. And it got to this point for me where it was like, it was either I had yoga and this yoga community or I had my eating disorder and the two of them could not both be in my life. Um, and it was the first time ever that I had something that I wanted more than I wanted to be sick. And so um, it still took a long time like to slowly let some of my symptoms go, but it was such um, it was such a motivation for me to start getting better. And then the fifth piece of my puzzle, which it's kind of still yoga, but um, in 2013, I took a workshop at Kripalu, which is a um, yoga retreat center um, up in the Berkshires, Western Massachusetts. And the workshop was called Quarter Life Calling. So it was for people in their 20s it was like kind of a yoga workshop, but it was more about yoga philosophy. Like I think we only did one actual yoga class where you roll out of a yoga mat and do poses. It was a lot about yoga philosophy. And it was led by this woman named Kobe Kozlowski, who to my day is still my main mentor and like the main influencer in everything that I do in my life. And um, after that workshop and 
we could talk more about that workshop. I could talk hours about that <laughs> workshop. But um, after that workshop, um, she and I just had a connection. And um, I went back to Kripalu in February and took a workshop that she did called, I think, Flowing Through the Elements. It was more of a yoga, asana, postures workshop. And then she was at Yoga Journal in New York City. So I went there. Then she was at Wanderlust in Vermont, so I followed her there. Then she was back at Kripalu doing a meditation workshop, so I went there with her. Then she went to Costa Rica. So I literally, 2013, I went. I was everywhere that Kobe was um, because I couldn't get enough of how much sense her teachings made to me and how much me implementing what I was learning from her was affecting my life. And so when I went to Costa Rica with her December 2013, that was a life coach training program. And so I did her life coach training program. And um, it was there that I decided that I really wanted to work with women in eating disorder recovery and fill some of the gaps that I had seen when I was in recovery. And at that point, I still think like, I call myself recovered now at that point, like when I left her life coach training, like I would say it was like 95% recovered. Like I was so much closer than I had ever had been. And then I think like over the next few years, it was just slow and steady to this point of where I, I call myself eating disorder recovered and I don't question that at all. And um, recovery has been a process and I guess I would say I've been recovered for about five years. So, um, you know, 2013's workshop, but um, it, it's been a, it's definitely been a slow and steady process. And, um, but today as I sit here and like I work with people with eating disorders, there is like, I, I got asked recently what my relationship with food is. And I was just like, there's, it's hard for me to answer because I don't even feel like there is like relationship. My relationship with food is that it's food and I eat it because I like the way it tastes. And there's not like, there's never a second thought before I eat something. And there's never this anxiety before I eat something. It's just like, like eating foods, like drinking water to me at this point, I just do it because I do it. And, and that's just it. And, um, um, I, yeah, I mean, I think that's most of my story. I could just keep talking, but I think <laughs> that you've got questions for me that, can, yeah. um, that can kind of direct where my talking leads to. Um, but, yeah. but like I said, I do, I do call myself recovered. I do 100% believe that I am recovered. And I also do 100% believe that other people can fully recover from an eating disorder. That was a pretty amazing story. Thank you for sharing. Um, there's a lot of things I want to ask you about it, but let's, let's stick on this idea of recovered yeah. a little bit because it is not a way that in my department, and that's kind of where my you know, philosophy on, on mental health rehabilitation is, stems from, we never use the term recovered. Right. Um, we are big about recovery. That's like one of our three founding goals. Uh, we do something specific called psychiatric rehabilitation. So it's built on the three goals of, of community integration, which you certainly touched on in your story, um, recovery, and then uh, having a positive and high quality of life. Um, but we always kind of look at it as this like lifelong process that you're, you're always striving to get, you know, to the next level or, you know, develop this higher order sense of self or identity or, you know, and embrace these, um, you know, valued social roles that everybody needs in their lives. But it's almost a little disappointing to me <laughs> that we never actually like, frame it as like people getting there. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you knew you were recovered and like, you know, I guess it doesn't assume that you can 
no longer be in recovery, you know, like I'm sure you acknowledge relapse is possible. So talk a little yeah. bit more about that. Yeah. I mean, I, I relapsed. So when I, I mean, when I relapsed, I would not have called myself recovered. I actually don't like, I just don't think I'll ever relapse again because I don't feel like, I feel like I'm recovered, but I do, you know, I have my father, um, got sober through AA and I have a best friend who's gotten sober through AA. And, um, I don't know that she ever went to NA, but she also had some drug stuff. And I know that for them, recovery is a lifelong process. And I know that that thought process works for some people. So if someone's listening and they're like, that works for me, then awesome. Like recovery can be a lifelong process. Um, but what I felt like when I was in treatment was like, people used to tell me I would never fully recover from an eating disorder. That is what I was told. Um, and that like, that was just depressing for me. Like I was, I was miserable when I was sick, but I was also almost more miserable when I was in recovery because here I was in this body that I hated, um, eating food that I hated and not being able to do anything about it. Right. So it's like my eating disorder was my coping mechanism and you're forced to gain weight when you're in treatment. Um, if you're, especially if you're there cause you're underweight and you're anorexic. So it's like, recovery was almost worse than being sick for me in the beginning. And so the thought that I would always be in recovery was just, like I said, it was depressing for me. And obviously recovery gets easier. Like you don't live in that spot of feeling like crap all of the time. But um, I don't know. I just, it was just something that I didn't, I never, I don't think I ever truly believed that it wasn't possible to fully recover. Um, and I guess like it, with eating disorders, like I, they're an addictive personality. They're, I know they fall under the umbrella of addictions, and I do believe that they are an addictive um, disorder. But I think that there's, there has to be a little, there's a little bit of a difference with it. And it's, the difference is that, you know, I know in AA, they teach like people's places and things, like change the people you're with, the places you go, and the things that you do that remind you of drinking or like don't go hang out with the people that used to drink with and don't drive by the bars you used to go to and and with eating disorders it's like you have to eat like there's just you don't have there that's not really an option like yeah you don't have to talk to people that maybe also have eating disorders and maybe you don't go to places where if you're a binge eater would be where you binged and um and things like that but like you don't have the option of not eating you know, because that's the disorder. So mm -hmm. you have to eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner, snacks, dessert, like every day, multiple times a day, you are faced with the thing that you're addicted to or the, like the, the thing that the absence of you're addicted to. And so you have to figure out a healthy relationship with it. And I think that's where there's a little bit of a difference between an eating disorder and other things. Um, because you know, with drugs, obviously, they're not even legal. So it's, you just don't go near them. And with drinking, drinking's legal. And you might figure out how to be, like, my best friend can go to a bar and be fine. She's not going to drink, but she's not triggered, you know. But with eating disorders, you just, you have to figure out how to have a relationship with this thing. Um, there's another recovery coach. Um, her name is Christy Amadio. And she, I listened to a podcast she was on, and I don't know that this was her metaphor if she heard it from somewhere else, but what she, the metaphor she gave was that an, an addiction is like a wild tiger. And it's like, what you're trying to do is tame this wild tiger and lock it in a cage. And once you've got this tiger locked in the cage, it's like you just don't let it out. So if you've got a drinking problem or if you've got an issue with drugs, you know, once the tiger's locked in the cage, you don't do things that might unlock the cage. You don't go to 
the bars you used to go to. You don't hang out with the people you used to hang out with. You don't, you know, the whole people's places and things. Um, but with an eating disorder, it's like you have to lock the tiger in the cage, but then at least three times a day, you have to unlock the cage, take the tiger out, put it on a leash and take it for a walk. And then you got to put it back in the cage. And so every day, that's what it feels like. And um, she's someone else that also thinks that full recovery is possible. And it's like at some point, there's just not even a tiger anymore. You know, and that's kind of, and it's kind of like a Zen thing, I think. But I, I, that's kind of how I believe. It's like after years of locking the tiger up, taking it out, walking it, putting it back in the cage, taking it out, walking it, putting it back in the cage, like eventually the tiger just, it just goes away. It's like either you just let it out again or it just goes away. Yeah. Um, and I, that's where I think the difference is in, in terms of eating disorders with other forms of addiction is it's like giving a drug addict their drug and being like, you've got to figure out how to have a healthy relationship with this. You have to do this five times a day, but it can't become a problem. You know, it's sense. like, yeah. So that's where, again, I understand how, um, like recovery is a lifelong thing. Like I'm not going to ever purge again because I don't want to know what that might lead to. Like, I'm not going to do that ever again, but I don't like the desire to do that is just not there. Like I just, it, I just don't believe that. I just believe that I can fully recover. And I think that I am. And I think I know other people that are too. Yeah. So let's, uh, let's, turn a little to some of the tools you used. Um, so I'm interested in, in your, your coping, you know, mechanisms and strategies and in particular, you know, how they've evolved over time. Cause I imagine that in some ways, you know, you may have found something early in your recovery and still use it to these days, to this day to help mm-hmm. you, you know, cope with, you know, if not, you know, uh, urges or issues related to food, then other, you know, life stressors. Um, and then other, for others, you know, there might be something you use, but you don't need anymore or may have like evolved over time. So tell me a little bit about your, your coping strategies and what's helped you. Yeah, I think. Early and now. Yeah. Yeah. I think like the first time I was in residential treatment, um, like I said, art helped me a lot. And I think what art helped me with was um, because I didn't feel like I had the words to process what was going on. Art gave me a creative outlet. And so I was. Um, I loved oil pastel, so I would draw a lot. And that's something that I did even when I got out of treatment. Like I remember I would stay up to like three o'clock in the morning some nights, just I had a huge sketch pad and oil pastels and I would just draw and the pictures were like really morbid, but they were pictures and they were getting out of my head. Um, And I would write and um, I would write poetry. um, I would journal. And so I think for a while those helped. Um, I think once I started doing DBT and the whole like idea of distractions, I mean, I think that's probably what I was doing with my art, but then um, I started doing like when I would have strong urges, I would do Sudoku puzzles because it would take me like an hour to get through a puzzle. And by the end of that hour, I wasn't feeling quite as bad. Um, I know that there's been like scientific studies on this idea of urge surfing where like urges only last about 20 to 30 minutes. And so if you can ride those 20 to 30 minutes out, um, the severity of the urge will lessen and it will decrease. And so um, I would do Sudoku. I would do crossword puzzles. Um, so those started to become a way for me to cope when I was, this is when I was like still pretty sick. Um, when I got out of treatment the last time, you know, I didn't really say this, but when I got out of treatment the last time, I was really on a search for like something because I felt very empty and 
and I almost feel like that search helped me a little bit cope. So like I tried community volleyball, um, I tried dance classes, I took a writing class, I joined like a New Jersey young professionals thing. So I think like for me being around people and not isolating always helped as a way of coping. So um, just getting out of my house, I remember some days I would just like get in my car and go for like a two hour drive because I needed to get out of my house because I just like wasn't good isolating there. Um, when I found yoga, that became my main coping strategy for sure. And, um, you know, with like with things like AA, like there's a meeting, especially where like where we, we live, it's a pretty populated area. Like my friends that I, my father that have used AA, it's like when they had an urge, they went to a meeting and there was a meeting like every day at any time of day they could find a meeting. And that doesn't exist for eating disorders, but there's a lot of yoga in this area. And so I almost feel like yoga became that for me as like, if I was having a really hard time, like when is the next class that I can go to? And I would go take a yoga class. And that first gave me a sense of community. Second allowed me to just move my body and, um, you know, get whatever energy was like stuck in my body moving, but then also like get it out of me. And, um, it's a way Yoga was a way and still is the way for me to just be in one place for 60 to 75 minutes and to kind of watch my brain and like notice what comes up. Um, and it allows me to focus. So I think yoga was a big part too. Um, now, when I think about coping, again, it's really, it's not ever about food, but one of the biggest things that I learned, and I learned this in treatment, I just didn't listen to it when I was in treatment, hmm. but this whole idea of, um, they call it like your eating disorder voice. And um, the whole book, the book Life Without Ed by Jenny Schaefer is all about this. Um, and it's this idea of learning how to differentiate your eating disorder voice versus your authentic voice. So like who is my voice as Kristen and like who is the eating disorder voice? And what that teaches you is really just awareness, like how to be aware of when your eating disorder is talking to you and when it's something else that's talking to you. And my teacher, Kobe, calls, she doesn't call it an eating disorder voice because it's not just in the realm of eating disorders, but she calls it like your gremlins. And it's these voices in your head that aren't you, you know? And there are a lot of times like gremlins have been adopted from like things you've heard other people say, things you've heard your parents say, or a coach say, or a teacher say, or like your bullies say that you've now internalized and you say to yourself. And um, learning awareness has been, such a big tool to me. And I still like, I think like a few days ago, I was actually texting with my best friend and I was like, my ability to pause and like become aware of what's going on in my life has made the biggest difference in my life. And kind of like what that means is um, like the, historically speaking, I've had a hard time getting in relationships with men. And what happens for me is I get really scared and then I just leave the relationship. And with my ability to pause, it's like I notice the fear and then I just don't react to the fear. I just notice it. And then usually I'm able to just respond differently. And whether that's talking to a friend or getting on my yoga mat or meditating or taking a walk, this ability to be able to I guess it's the difference between reacting and responding, right? So it's like this ability to be able to notice what's going on, not react to it, pause, be aware of it, kind of figure out where it's coming from, what's driving it, what's truer than what I'm actually feeling, and then choosing how I respond if I respond to it. Um, that has been a like a, just a total life changer in how I cope with things because I think – 
still for me sometimes, but I think especially like with people that are really struggling in the thick of a mental illness, it's like feelings are so strong that all we want to do is do something to make the feeling stop. And so there's never really a pause. It's like, I feel like shit, so I'm going to drink, or I feel like shit, so I'm going to self-injure, or I feel like shit, so I'm going to purge or like not eat just as a way to like self-medicate and not feel anymore. And when you're able to notice the feeling and then take a step back and give it space and pause and not be so afraid of the feeling that all you're trying to do is push it away, that not only do you learn a lot about yourself, but you also start to learn that you've got the power to choose how you respond to these feelings and you've got the power to choose what you do instead. And so I guess they're, um, learning how to be aware and pause and then also realizing w- what a different choice has made in my life or feeling like I have a choice Um that's like a long-winded way of answering your question. But I feel like that's where my coping mechanism has evolved to like today. Yeah. And it makes sense, I think, because you, you described early, you know, the, you know, the art and stuff early in your recovery. It almost seems like you, you just needed to get a lot of feelings out and, and you used, you know, tools that were familiar to you, you know. Mm-hmm. And then as you've progressed, you know, you, you've sort of acquired you know, with a good foundation, these more like higher level, higher order tools, you know, you you touched a lot on, you know, this like sitting with, you know, these uncomfortable feelings or or just kind of observing these like intrusive thoughts that you have and and not reacting as, you know, mindfulness techniques that we actually discussed. uh, I had a few different um, guests on the show last semester, one to talk about mindfulness in general and one to talk about meditative strategies. And and it's so much of what you talked about right there. Yeah. And it's, um, you know, yoga helped me with that too. So like beyond the yoga practice, there's like a huge yoga philosophy that like backs everything that you do on the yoga mat. And in yoga philosophy, there's something called the koshas. And um, in Sanskrit, a kosha is like a layer or a sheath. And it's they say that like your human body is made up of five layers. So the most superficial, your outer layer is your physical layer. There's the breath layer, the mental emotional layer. And then your fourth body is known as the witness body. And it's the compassionate observer. And it's literally your ability to be aware of what's going on in everything else and not judge it, but just watch it. And then um, your fifth body is your bliss body. And that's the part of you that's always connected to whatever your higher power is, whatever your higher power may be. But this idea of awareness shows up like in yoga, in treatment philosophies, in meditation, in, you know, the things that work I find are in like every single modality. They're just explained in different ways. Yeah. That's yeah. I mean, that's a really um, philosophical way to look at it. And um, everybody, you know, kind of, I think needs those, you know, kind of, tools that are familiar with them early on and to, and then they go exploring like you you know you, you shared earlier talking about you know just following your mentor around i mean that yeah. just must have been you know such an experience mm-hmm. um let's focus a little bit on on your business um because that is really interesting to me and, and entrepreneurship is something I, I really value um and, and try and promote here on the show so it it's gotta it had to have been scary in some ways like talk about the decision to start your own business and then maybe uh what was the biggest tool or resource that helped you sort of get off the ground? Yeah. So um, I think like the original idea of my business happened during the life coach training in Costa Rica back in 2013. Um, The way that the life coach certification that I did is run is that it's kind of flexible. And so like the last day we had a 
to present how we wanted to take life coaching and kind of like make it our own thing. And I remember saying that I wanted to coach people that were in eating disorder recovery when they leave rehab to like really get them when they're still motivated and when it's like kind of the hardest adapting back into life that's not your residential treatment center. So I think that's where the first idea came. And, um, and then I like coached, I wasn't coaching people in recovery, but I coached some people. Um, and I started managing so I was like into yoga. So like there was these like two areas of my life. It was like this area of like life coaching and then there's this area of fitness and yoga and they're kind of the same area, but they're also slightly different. And so at the time I was managing a fitness club um, and then I started managing a yoga studio and um, then I started managing an apartment building. So I've had a lot of jobs in management and this leads to where I am now. So when I was managing the yoga studio, I was really busy and I didn't really have time to coach. So I gave up every client I had except for one. And then um, I felt like my time at the yoga studio was kind of coming to an end. And I got this opportunity to manage an apartment building instead down in New Brunswick. And I was managing an apartment building and that gave me a lot of time to start coaching. So I picked up a lot of other clients. And that January, I've gone back to Costa Rica with my teacher every year as now faculty on her coaching school. And um, that year in Costa Rica I had made the decision that I wasn't happy doing what I was doing and I needed to be working for myself. Um, and I really kind of like found the urge to want to coach again. And so that was January. And while I was there, I made this huge nine month plan and I was like, this is how it's going to happen. And obviously it didn't happen like exactly how I had planned in January, but, um, between January and July, I saved what money I could. I tried to not spend that much money just so that I had a little bit of in the bank. And um, I started getting really a lot more picky about who I would coach and started really focusing primarily on um, women in eating disorder recovery. And, um, and I joined a business coaching group because I'm a pretty like, I think I'm a pretty balanced person in between my creativity and just like, being analytical and like being able to start a business. Um, and I just needed a little bit of help. So she kind of helped the business coaching group helped me like establish, um, I had already had an LLC, but helped me do a DBA and helped me get a website up and running and helped me figure out my pricing structure. And so like all of the technical sides of what it means to build a business, I was sort of doing with this group. And then in July, um, I quit my job managing the apartment building and I moved um, to where I live now in Bloomfield, New Jersey. And um, I can't say that I coach full time right now. I think it's, it's still a work in progress, but I, but I, between coaching and teaching yoga, that's, that's what I do. And so my company is called always a being and um, it's kind of a play on the whole, like once an addict, always an addict thing. It's a once a being, always a being um, just like trying to take the, title of like, hi, I'm an addict or like, hi, I, I am an eating disorder. I'm an anorexic. Like you're actually, you're not that you're also like not a yogi. You're also not like, you're not any of these labels. You're just like a being, you're just like, that's all you are. And so, um, that's where the name always a being came from. And it's, it's pretty specifically eating disorder recovery coaching. Um, there's a lot of eating disorder. Well, not a lot, but there are other eating disorder recovery coaches out there though. 
the way that I work is I primarily work with people that are not very symptomatic anymore. So they might still be sort of using symptoms. I like taking people um, fresh out of residential treatment. And again, like I said, when they're really motivated and they just need help like acclimating back into life and discovering like what is their passion. And, you know, when I had my eating disorder and I was depressed, I lost my friends. I lost my hobbies. I had no interests. I barely got off the couch. Um, I lost my job. I was not in school. And so coming out of treatment, it's like I felt like I had nothing. I was like living at home with my parents and all I had was going to therapy a few times a week. And so what I do in my coaching is like I help a little bit with symptom management, but really it's like let's start talking about what's good in life because I felt like I spent so long just talking in therapy about how much like what was wrong with my life. Um, and so I help people start to figure out what they love to do, what things light them up, um, where they might want to work, if they want to go back to school, like what are their passions. Um, and then from there, we start to like slowly drop whatever lingering eating disorder symptoms there might be and try to start to live more wholly into um, who it is that they want to be instead. Um, so the company's always a being and... Um, I do one-on-one -on -one coaching. I'm going to be starting a group hopefully this summer. I think it's going to be a little bit of a book club. So it's going to be using a few different books as tools to access recovery. Um, and then I recently started a podcast called the Eating Disorder Recovery Speakers Podcast. And what that is is the platform for other people who are either well into the recovery or who are also recovered to come on and share their story. Cool. Yeah, and I will totally uh, link to all of those uh, sites in the show notes if you're interested in learning more. Uh, let's close with a couple of questions about uh, school and college. This, this is the College Student Success Podcast. So one thing I, I didn't have down to ask you, but I noticed it in your story, a pattern, uh, when you were talking about being in college and leaving college and going back and leaving, um, that you always, despite how bad it got, you always had the wherewithal to kind of go through the proper channels of leaving. Mm -hmm. I mean, it must have been hard, you know, to take the time of like, ah, I just need to get out of here, but let me do the, the official medical leave of absence yeah. because, you know, that's not going to mess my GPA or, or when you knew early on into Montclair that it wasn't going to work, that you, you, you took the opportunity to withdraw. Like, mm -hmm. you know, some, a lot of people I talk to in recovery for mental illness, like students, they, they find the need all the time to, to take time off from school and, it always hurts so much more when they don't go through the proper channels. So like, was there anything, like, how'd you know how to do that? Or like, was there anything like that kind of helped you kind of make those wise decisions? Cause I'm sure it helped when you got to Seton Hall. Yeah. Um, well, first I think my grades had always been important to me. Um, I was always like a good student and I wanted to do well and I was smart. And so I think like, I think that was just something that was important to me. And so when I decided I needed to leave, like I didn't know what that looked like. So I'm pretty sure I did, I researched, um, you know, what ways you can leave. And like one way is withdrawing, but it was too late in the semester. Um, at Montclair State, it was not too late in my semester. So I was able to do that. But the only other way was a medical leave of absence. And in that way, it was basically like you were withdrawing, but there wasn't really the the same time limit on it. So if you were going for a medical reason, then it was kind of like you got a W on your report card. So it's not like you um you didn't get a grade, but because you didn't get a grade, it did nothing to your GPA. It's not like you got an F because you just stopped going to classes and doing all of your work. Um, 
And I actually think my second year, now that I'm thinking about it, my second time in treatment, I think I medically withdrew from a few classes, but I remember I was still going, I was still doing my stats homework. There was a few classes that I, the teachers were really great and allowed me to do the work um, while I was in treatment. So I think there were a few that I withdrew from, but then there was other ones that um, I continued with my second time. My first time I took just a total medically from everything. Um, it really helped me that I had a very supportive family. And um, so, you know, I did everything that I needed to do, but I had a mom that was really willing to follow up while I was in treatment and just make sure everything happened the way that it needed to happen. Um, and I also, Ithaca College, you know, because I was in Ithaca, I was in Montclair, I was at Scene Hall, I had a sister that was at Northeastern in Montclair. And my mom will even say this, like they, they were really like the registrar's office there, like all, all of their departments were just really, they made it easy for me. Like they just, I don't know what it was about them, but um, they made it very easy for me to medically withdraw. They seemed to like genuinely care about my health and not like the paperwork that I was adding onto their desk. And um, my professors really cared. And so that also helped. But I think in terms of going through proper channels, it was um, just my grades were always really important to me. And um, I didn't, I didn't want to like tank my GPA because I, I was being um, like, I was being so fast with my decision that I didn't um, do what needed to be done. And also like, I was concerned about my roommate. And so I did some of the research thinking that she was going to actually go through all of this, not thinking that I was going to go through all of this. Yeah. Subconsciously though. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, no, it's just, I'm glad, you know, we, we spent a little time on this because it's something that I, I do when I was supporting students, you know, in recovery directly, mm -hmm. um, you know, it was something we always, you know, talked about in the event, you know, you needed to leave, like, you know, try and go through the proper channels because when you come back, you'll, you'll, be thankful you did. Yep. Um, so to kind of end, maybe we'll talk a little bit about faculty because I do have a good number of faculty that listen that are just, you know, invested in supporting students with mental health issues. Um, and you, you touched a little bit in that last question on, you know, some of the faculty that's helped you. Yeah. And so maybe you could just talk a little bit about like what, what could faculty do to support students? And maybe it's not, maybe they don't know from the outset, the person has an eating disorder, but you know, just students that are struggling and you could tell that it's, you know, some sort of internal struggle. Yeah. Um, well, I think one, like recognizing that an internal struggle is a real struggle. Like I always appreciated if I was just having a day where I could not make it to class and it was because I was just so depressed that I couldn't get out of bed. I appreciated feeling like I had some professors that I could actually tell that to and not have them like feel like I just was being lazy and not coming to class. So I think one is, you know, understanding that that is depression and anxiety and addictions like are debilitating diseases or can be. And so if a student comes up to you and is like, I just couldn't get out of bed or like I was having an anxiety attack, I could not come, not to take that lightly. Um, I remember the only professor that ever like confronted me about my eating disorder. I don't even remember honestly what her name was, but I remember her coming up to me before class one day and she didn't say like, Oh, I think you have an eating disorder, but just like being like, are you okay? Like she just knew I wasn't okay. And I totally lied to her and said that I was, but um, you know, one thing I say to my clients a lot is um, like, you're only as sick as your secrets and having her say that to me kind of made me feel like 
um, it almost, I don't know that I ever did talk to her. Maybe I did, but it, it felt like it gave me a doorway that if I needed to talk to someone, she was someone that I might be able to talk to. Um, I think like having the faculty know what a medical leave is so that like, say a student just doesn't know to go to the counseling center or they don't just whatever, but like certain students start to like form certain relationships with like certain with teachers, you know, there were some teachers that like I liked. And so I'd go to their um, office hours for extra help or, you know, we would chat a little bit or I would do research under them. And, you know, if one of them kind of was able to guide me a little bit on like, you know, I, I can tell you're going through something or maybe I confided in them, like for them to also know what the channels are to take a medical leave. Um, I think that could probably, that didn't happen, but I think that could probably be helpful. Um, and then, you know, the treatment center I was in allowed you to do schoolwork. Like you could be in school, like kids that, you know, kids, cause there was like 13, there was high schoolers and middle schoolers in the treatment program with us. Like they had a few hours of school every day. Like they had to go to a room and there was an academic person there and they had to do their schoolwork. And so I kind of got enrolled in that because I didn't take a medical leave from all of my classes. And, um, you know, I understand, like I had to medically withdraw from sculpture because there was no way I was going to be able to do a sculpture class yeah. in treatment. But um, for the classes that I could do, like I was good at stats and I could do stats in treatment and um, I could do drawing in treatment, like my drawing class. And like there were some teachers that just went above and beyond to um, work with me, realizing that I was going through something, um, but also realizing like I could potentially still take this class. So like my drawing professor, I wasn't drawing what everybody else was drawing. We kind of agreed that I wasn't going to get an A, but she was like, if you do all of these drawings, she gave me like three drawings a week I had to do, she'd pass me with a B. And for me, that was good. You know, I was perfectly mm -hmm. fine with that. Um, you know, and my stats professor was like, this is the work, like you could do the work and you could take the tests online and you can submit it. And if you do well, you do well. And um, I think I ended up with an A in stats. And so I think just having professors that are open-minded first of like working with students where it's a, where they're able to, and also just like realizing um, that a mental illness can be just as debilitating as like having an 104 fever in the flu. You know, I cannot make it to class today. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And that's something I talk about. I've had a few people, you know, they identify as um, psych survivors mm -hmm. and they would talk about, you know, in that process of like, just, you know, struggling, they, school was really important to them and they would be struggling with their symptoms, but they would make the effort and they would get their ass to class and they might look like hell. Right. <laughs> and sometimes, you know, the, you know, the, the, the teacher, and I'm sure it's coming from a right place. Right. But they might be say something like, you know, Oh, you know, you look, you know, you don't look good, you know, maybe you should go home or take a rest. And like the, the people talk about like, that's not what I want to hear right now. Like right. if anything say, you know, oh, I'm really glad to see you here today. I'm glad mm -hmm. you were able to make it, you know, mm -hmm. and like, um, you know, it's just so kind of to have to, to know what the mindset might be in people, you know, um, and, you know, to, if nothing else, if you don't know what else to say, you know, thank them for being there and recognize them for that because sometimes that took a lot. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I just, I remember just getting out of bed at one point was just, it was just like so almost impossible. And like at the end of my, my semesters where I did wind up in rent in, in residential, like it was impossible. I just was not getting out of bed ever. Yeah. Yeah. 
Wow. So any, any last minute, last advice, if there's listeners out there and they're listening to your story and maybe deep down they're realizing some things about themselves and their relationships with food, you know, what, what advice would you give to somebody that's kind of like in that stage right now that like they kind of know something's going on, but they, they haven't taken any steps yet. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe we'll leave with that as, you know, some, some practical words. Yeah, I think that um, two things in particular stand out for me. One is ask for help. So, like, even if you're not sure if you, like, have an eating disorder, like, but you know that you binge sometimes, you know, or you know that um, you're really preoccupied with your weight or calories, or you know that you go to the gym longer or more often than other people do, like, you don't need to have been diagnosed with an eating disorder to have an unhealthy relationship with food and your weight that's taking a toll on your mental state. Um, And so I think asking for help is huge. And so if you don't feel comfortable asking for help from your parents, you know, every school has a counseling center. Um, You know, these days there's um, like, I think it's called better help or talk space. Like there's online ways of getting help. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think one is, go find someone that you can ask for help from. Because again, like I said, you're only as sick as your secrets. And then two is tell the truth. So it's like, not only ask for help, but like tell the truth about what's going on with you. Like what, what are you actually struggling with? What are your actual feelings? Um, you know, cause the, you can ask for help, but if you're not being honest with what you're really needing help with, then you might not get the right help that you need. And so, um, I think that like the education on what an eating disorder is, is kind of like not exactly right. I think anybody that's feeling preoccupied with their weight, preoccupied with calories, if you know you've got binging episodes, if you've ever purged, if you like know that you restrict your food, even if no one's ever been like, I think you have an eating disorder or you don't think you meet whatever criteria you think an eating disorder is. Just like my doctor had said to me a long time ago, like it can get out of control really fast. Um, and so as soon as you think there might be a problem, like just go ask for help. Um, so I think that's kind of my, my biggest advice is ask for help because it does not have to be that way. Like, I think I have a healthier relationship with food in my body than almost everybody that I know, even if they have no problems with food. And it's because I've done so much work on myself in return in, in relationship to food in my body that like, it's just not a problem for me anymore. And it doesn't like, don't, don't wait until the point of where your whole life is about your weight and food to ask for help. Like as soon as you notice something is off and you know, when something's off with yourself, like go ask for help and tell the truth. Yeah. Well said. This is, uh, it's been a really inspiring interview, Kristen. Thank you so much uh, for coming on the show today. Um, where can people once again, just uh, find out more info about you? Yeah. My website is always a Um, so you can go there, you can contact me there. Um, I've got some podcasts and blog posts up, um, a list of the things that I do. My services are there. Um, and then, the podcast is called always um, is called Eating Disorder Recovery Speakers, and that's on my website, but it's also on iTunes and on SoundCloud. So you can um, you can go find that and listen to that as well. It's new, so there's only two episodes right now, but I've got two others recorded, and the plan is every Tuesday to release a new one. So um, it's start early with us, but there'll there'll be a a new podcast every week. 
All right, check it out. If you're uh, definitely interested in hearing this, this story that you heard today, uh, I will, as I mentioned, link to these uh, websites in the show notes. So once yeah. again- I also, one more thing, sorry. Yep, sure. Um, so I do, I do eating disorder recovery coaching and I, um, I, I do a pay what you can afford structure. And I, like, I want people to hear that I truly mean that. So if you think you need coaching and you know that you don't have a lot of money, like I will work with you on pricing. Cause I think that's something that stops, especially college kids that don't have a lot of money from going to seeking help is that they can't afford it. Um, and so if that's something that you feel like you need, like go to my website, contact me, we will figure out a way to make it work for you. That's yeah, that's tremendous. So it's awesome that you do that. Uh, Kristen, once again, thank you so much uh, for coming on the show today. Thanks so much, Derek.